0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Laura Frederick. She's the author of the book, Practical Tips on How to Contract, Techniques and Tactics from an Ex-Big Law and Ex-Tesla Commercial Contracts Lawyer. Laura, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, I appreciate you having me on.
0: This episode may be a little bit different than some of my listeners are used to because although I am interested in the content of your book, I am also very interested in the story of how you came to write it and the way that you've crafted your career, because I think you have a lot of really interesting tips and things that lawyers who may be listening could apply to their own careers. So first off, how about you introduce yourself to my audience and share a little bit about what your backstory has been?
1: Sure. So my name's Laura Frederick. I own a law firm here in Austin, Texas. I'm also the president of a a training business called How to Contract. But in terms of backstory, I started my career in law firms, practicing initially franchise law for a couple of years and then moved to technology transactions. So I spent about 10 years in law firms before I went in-house, then ended up spending about 14 years in-house, including the last job I had, which was a commercial contracts lawyer at Tesla. And I decided, I was looking for something different. So I decided to take the leap and I opened my own firm in January, 2019. So that's kind of brought me to where I am today and and with my own firm and opening up my training business.
0: This book would be a pretty easy fit for someone who practices contract law or doesn't usually practice contract law, but needs to for a particular case. But I also think that hearing your story and how you came to write this book would be helpful for any attorney who is trying to be a solo or help their small firm and thinks to themselves, but how could I get out there and attract business without having to go to innumerable you know, cocktail parties or lots of you know, civic council meetings? I'm really intrigued by how you came to compile this book. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, no, and I'm definitely one of those lawyers that when I opened my own firm, 100% of the work I got in the fir- first 18 months was from referrals, either former co-workers or friends and colleagues of former co-workers, people who knew me. And I reached the point in the summer of 2020, which was kind of height of the pandemic, where I wanted to grow my firm, but I didn't really know anybody and I didn't really have a great way to socialize. I'd started getting more active on LinkedIn just because it was a great place to kind of chat with people all day when we were all so isolated. And I saw a challenge early on that said someone had uh, taken a challenge to post 30 days in a row on LinkedIn. And at the time I thought, well, I don't think I could go 30 days. Maybe I could post for a few days and that would kind of help people see that I knew what I was talking about. So I started posting just some top of mind things that I wanted to share with people that I've learned about contracts throughout from my career. And immediately there was this huge reception to my posts because I framed each one as this a contract tip and it would tell some kind of practitioner perspective of you know, approach your assignment provisions this way and how to deal with negotiations when somebody talks over you or other things like that. And there was a lot of reception. And I decided to start posting those contract tips every day. And there was a lot of uh, interest in getting a collection of them. I started within a few weeks, people said, have you collected these in a PDF? Can you send that to me? And at that point, I decided, you know, I should self-publish because that's an easy way for me to get this collection of tips into the hands of whoever wants one and or whoever wants a copy and because I could sell it through Amazon. And a lot of people,
0: I think, either have a misperception about self-publishing that dates back to, you know, the era of Vanity Press, where maybe you were trying to create a memoir that honestly it would go to 20 people and they were all related to you. And that just is not really the situation now. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like to self-publish any tips you've learned from doing so anything you do differently now looking back?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I did a true self-publishing that I I prepared the manuscript in Word with very little formatting is what I, that was one of the tricks I learned. I spent a lot of time on my first draft formatting it to look a particular way, but then the person who ended up preparing the formats for publication had to take all those out and redo it. So the the direction was prepare a Word uh, document with just a, a main heading like H1 and a secondary heading H2, but otherwise don't worry about the formats. And so what I did was I just took each individual tip and luckily each tip fit on an individual page. So the way the book's set up, it's got chapters, but you could just read one page in its entirety and then randomly flip to any other page and you'd have a contract tip in its entirety. So I pulled the tips together uh, that I had already posted. I had about 91 contract tips divided them into chapters, you know, assigned the headline of uh, for each tip, and then found someone to do the formatting to get it into the style needed for Amazon. Uh, I mean, it was a Mobi style, EPUB, and then a PDF. And so there was some work getting the style right, but it was relatively painless process. I think from the time... I finished the, the draft of my book to so the time it was published was about two weeks.
0: Oh, wow. And yeah, because you had this backlog of material that you could repurpose, it was just sitting right there.
1: It's so If you had asked me before, like, whether I could ever write a book, I'd say no way, because that would take forever. And I'm a mom, I have a law firm, I have a business, you know, I don't have time to write a book. And so, by collecting what I wrote every day on LinkedIn, it was it was this miraculous process where I just focused on writing my tip each day and doing a I you know, invested time to do a quality job of each post. But then I just took all of the posts and gathered them and published that. And it was a huge hit. People really appreciated. Um, It was a a different voice, I think, than most people who talk about contracts. I have a relatively informal and conversational writing style. So it's found an audience among people who want to be able to learn, but without all that formality and stiffness um, that you find in a lot of legal writing.
0: And you talk about your own style, and I want to carry that through to discussing branding. Because I noticed when I went to your LinkedIn page, this is not a visual medium, so sorry to my listeners, but you still are at it. You're still posting, it seems to me, like every day. And with it, you have these comical little cartoons. All of the choices you make from your book to your LinkedIn posts, they have a common thread of color choice, for example. Uh, And you chose a really striking combination of black, neon, green, and white to be your primary colors. And this is just something that I noticed as someone who read the book and then went to your LinkedIn page. But I'd love to hear from you. You know, those are the kinds of decisions that they certainly don't talk to you about in law school. uh, So you had to find your way to these. Could you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I'd worked over the years as a lawyer supporting people I knew who had small businesses or were starting up businesses and people with expertise, serial entrepreneurs. And one of the things I learned from them was the idea of color as a branding tool and was taught by them that it's really one of the most important things you can do is to identify a color and be consistent with the color. And the advice I got from one uh, former business colleague was, pick a football team's color scheme. And just, they've spent a lot of time identifying the best colors to use. So just adopt a team and pick that. And so I ended up going, I'm not a huge Jets fan, but I thought, okay, I like green and I like kind of silver and white and, or gray and white. And those were kind of the, the colors. So that's... How we ended up there. But I've, I learned to use it wherever you can because the mind recognizes color before it recognizes the names. So by having a color on each of my posts every day with my cartoon, people stop scrolling because they, they can glimpse the green and they know that's going to be one of my posts.
0: And let's talk about the cartoon. Do you hire someone to do those? Do you have that skill yourself?
1: I actually developed it uh, over the course of posting. So, I when I first started posting my contract tips, they didn't have a graphic associated with them. And then someone told me you really need graphics for LinkedIn to you know spread and and share it with a wider audience. So I started getting stock photos of like you know piles of boxes or somebody sitting in a field or you know random ones that you always see. And then I came up with the idea of having the green background and using a stick figure. So in the beginning, I just did stick figures, like a guy running to a bank, if it was a financial-related post. And eventually, I started adding dialogue, and it became a one-scene cartoon. And over time, as I got—and I create all these myself using Canva— and over time, I became more skilled at creating these scenes. And so my favorite is somebody called me the Michael Bay of LinkedIn cartoons. Oh, <laughs> Because I end up creating these elaborate scenes sometimes with explosions and buildings falling down. Or a lot of them have comical uh, characters of pirates or aliens or animals, you know, all in something related to negotiations. So you'll have... Uh, a cat making too much noise purring during negotiations to kind of make the point about when people uh, won't be quiet or something like that.
0: Yes. And, you know, the cartoons that I've seen, what the characters are saying, they may be in a, in a strange situation or setting, but what the characters are saying are something that I can absolutely hear someone saying in, in a negotiation. And it'll be something like, you know, okay, uh, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready to have the negotiation just so long as we get everything we want.
1: Right, right. Like, well, it oh, it, it will actually say these. <laughs> I know exactly. It's been fun because I have a silly streak to me, and I love Monty Python and I love slapstick comedy. So, with these tips, I think of the what I'm talking about in the tip, which actually is a serious tip. It's it's providing my best insight that I gained over my career about some particular point, but then taking it to a comical level. So actually, I enjoy doing the t- the cartoons even more than I enjoy writing the tips.
0: Another thing I noticed is that you are also in the comments, you know, talking to the people who comment on your posts. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast may remember an episode we did back in August of 21 with Mark W. Halpert, and he talked about the importance um, in his book, uh, LinkedIn for Lawyers. He says that kind of engagement is really needed. You shouldn't just post and then walk away. What's been your experience doing that? I think a lot of people would maybe feel shy or, oh, should I really be, you know, jumping in and, and talking to, to people? What's been your experience with commenters?
1: Yeah, the, I cre- completely agree with his comment because comments are everything on LinkedIn, and the people who just post and walk away really miss out on the value that LinkedIn can offer. So if you just post, you first of all, LinkedIn doesn't share your post very widely if you're not engaging in the comments. But even apart from that, you know, the value of LinkedIn is in the relationships you're building and in the name recognition. And you get to know people for what they know and what they talk about. But you won't get to know anybody if you're just sitting passively watching the scroll. So I started because part of it's I just love contracts. I always have. And it's so much fun for me to sit and talk about contracts. And also I learn so much because every day I post on some issue, whether it's an intellectual property provision or a termination provision or whatever it is. And, you know, I only know what I know about those topics. And I've learned a lot over my career, but there's a lot I don't know. And so these comments actually have provided me this huge opportunity to learn and expand my understanding. So I consider myself a much better lawyer with a much deeper understanding and a broader understanding of the topics because of all the wonderful people who comment on the posts and share their perspective.
0: Now, before becoming a solo you did have experience in a big law firm. Do you see a avenue for people who do have a very small practice to get the sort of colleague conversations going that maybe you are more able to have in a big law setting with an office with literal hundreds of people than, you know, sitting on your own in your own home office through social media?
1: Yeah, it's it's such a great way because that idea of being in an office with lots of experts around you that you could just wander down the hall and talk to somebody or ask a question, you know, that was what I learned with and it certainly was wonderful way to learn and continues to be. But so few people have that opportunity anymore, either because everybody's so busy, because of remote work, whatever it is that that way that lawyers used to learn how to draft and negotiate contracts, either by you know sitting next to the partner as they walk through a draft or sitting in on those negotiations and having the partner kind of put it on mute and explain his point to you during a break, those things are much harder to get now. And also because so many lawyers are not going to law firms anymore, they're going in-house or they're going to other roles or opening up their own firms. And part of the motivation I had to write this book was, I have all this knowledge. You know, I've been practicing law since 1995. I know how to do a lot of stuff when it comes to contracts. And there's so much more to contracts than just the academic stuff that we read about in a lot of the other contract books and and case books, whether it's analysis of the different types of conditional language or things like that. You know, those are useful, but my job working in companies and at law firms on contracts, that part of the legal language analysis is only 10% of the job, 20% of the job at most, but most of the job involves a lot more. And that's really what I talk about in the book. All the other parts of contract drafting, what the words really mean when they say this, and what you're going to face in the real world when there's a dispute over that
0: well we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors and when we return i'll still be talking to laura frederick about her book practical tips on how to contract delegate out those tasks that take up your time staffy can help you with your legal administrative marketing and even client facing workload hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means staffy does the recruiting hiring and training for you then if you need a change Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S T A F I.cc and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time consuming and error prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at InfoTrack.com simple. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, here with Laura Frederick. And here's my next question. So I have heard what may be a legend or may be true, but it is about a famous musician group that put a small little kernel in one of their contracts of, when we are backstage, we want a bowl of M&Ms, and no brown M&Ms should be in that bowl. And they used it as sort of a, a red flag that if they came to a venue, saw that there were M&Ms, but there were brown m ms in there, that the contract hadn't been adhered to. Uh, first off, do you have any idea if this is a true story? And second, are there those kinds of little things that someone may not think to put in a contract, but, you know, you find real value in?
1: Yes, it actually is a true story. We had a conference in January and a Ross Guberman, who's a national expert on contract writing or legal writing, talked about that specific case. And I uh, said there was an NPR story about the case. So it's definitely was true. And I do find that all the time, that there are people put in language into contracts, small words, phrases, sentences that can have a huge impact on the liability, the operational risk, all the other things related to a contract. And that's a lot of the uh, challenge for lawyers is to understand all those individual words and why we pick this word over that word. So if you're a newer lawyer, you may learn from law school, well, they taught us to write a license grant this way but what the practitioners with lots of years of experience will share is, yeah, but if you don't have this word or if, you, if the other side included this, you may be much more limited in exercising your rights than you would if it wasn't there. And so those kernels, it's what I call the inside baseball rules of contract drafting, sort of the things that people who have been doing it for a while know, but newer people people into the industry don't. That's a lot of what I wanted to capture in the book and continue to capture with my contract tips.
0: This is reminding me of an old family story from one of my aunts who when she watched her mother bake a pot roast, her mother always cut off the the ends of the pot roast and cooked the rest of it. And so she when she got her own house did that as well. You cut off the end of the roast and then you put it in the oven. Her mother came over and was watching her do this and said, honey, why are you getting rid of the end of the roast? She said, well, you always did. And she said, well, that's because of the size of my pan. You know, you don't have the same size pan. (laughs) You don't need to cut off the end of the roast. And I do, having been able to see some of the contracts that we as a magazine sign with various vendors, there's a lot in some sort of you know, stock contract language that you think to yourself, is there a real reason for that? Or did they write it that way because of the size of the pan? Do you see things like that in today's businesses that are often trying to rely on partial contracts that they may have downloaded from, you know, say the internet saying this is a stock lease contract?
1: Definitely. And th- if there's a lot of it out there. Although I don't admonish the people who have to download contracts or find them another way, because, you know, it's the reality of our world that we don't ever draft contacts from scratch, and we always are pulling samples from somewhere. Hopefully, you have a good place to find samples as opposed to just grabbing one off the internet. But even if that's what you have to do, the the core is to make sure that the contract says what you need it to say. and I always encourage people to think ahead to the end, you know, what, if something goes wrong with this relationship, what do you want to point to in the contract to support your cause of why you were wronged and they should make you whole? And so whether it's payment or delivery or whatever service level you need, you know, the fact that a contract came from the internet isn't the end of the world. It's more a problem if you don't have the contract match what you needed to say.
0: Well, we've been talking a lot about your tips, but I'd love for people to hear one. You and I spoke before this and picked out one that's not actually strictly about contract law, and that's because many of our listeners will not be practicing contract law, but I still want them to get a feel for your writing and the kind of advice you give. Would you mind reading one of those for us?
1: Sure. And this one is uh, part of the chapter called Other Inspiration. So I have tips, but I like to post a lot about other wisdom that I've picked up over the years. And this is uh, a real important one for me that is uh, true to my heart. So it starts, you never had control. You had anxiety. Quote, you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. I discovered this quote by Elizabeth Gilbert around the same time a big law partner told me that he wanted to open his own firm like I had, but was too scared to take the leap. Let me tell you, I was scared to death when I opened my firm last year. I was a single mom and the sole support for me and my four teenage sons. I was leaving a great job with a regular paycheck and a 401k and health insurance to do what? Launch a law firm by myself with no clients and no experience running a firm? Was I crazy? This was not a logical or sane thing to do. But here's the thing. I realized that I would have a lot of fear even if I stayed. I would have the fear of being laid off, the fear of screwing up, the fear of pissing off someone in charge, and so forth. The truth I found was that I would be afraid no matter what I did. I would never have control of everything that happens to me, and that would always make me scared. Once I found peace with my lack of control, I accepted my fear and found the courage to take the leap anyway. Think about these questions. What is beyond your fear? is your fear protecting you or preventing you from achieving your best life.
0: And that's the entirety of the post. And so you can, you know, hear this and, you know, for my listeners, this is more or less the length of most of the entries. And so, you know, this is a book that you can pick up, read one or two bits of, set down, pick up again read one or two bits of. And so you you don't have to read this book all in one sitting. And I think you can come back to it for other situations. And, and like I said, I, I asked you to read something that was not about contract law, but the other chapters in this book, I'll just read some of the entries out so that you have a feel for it. Disputes and dispute resolution, contract structure and formation, confidentiality and NDAs indemnification. So you are covering a lot of very technical subjects, but you're doing it in a way that to me as a reader who does not have a law degree felt very approachable. So just wanted to to give you that feedback as a reader. I think a lot of people are going to be intrigued by the fact that you worked for Tesla. So I, I will bring it up. What do you feel your time at Tesla taught you about contract law?
1: Well, I don't know that I learned a lot more about contract law at that point because I'd already had 20 plus years of experience when I joined. But what it did give me was exposure to what I considered kind of the Pro Bowl MVP team. It It was sort of the best of the best. And when I was able to succeed there, it gave me more confidence than I'd ever had before. And really the confidence to go out and open my firm and the confidence to put out things like my book and my daily post, because it's very intimidating to stand up and say, I know this about this subject, not being an academic, just being a practitioner who's worked in the field. So the time at Tesla just gave me that confidence that, in fact, I really did know what I was talking about and that what I had to say could benefit other people.
0: So you were making a lot of life changes at a time that, you know, none of us knew that the pandemic was about to hit, but life changed for so many of us. If you could go back and talk to the Laura of say 2019, is there anything in particular you'd you'd say to her? Other than maybe stock up on toilet paper, there's something uh, coming.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think it's, I'm, I feel very blessed that I found kind of this community on LinkedIn uh, right in the first summer of the pandemic. There's a large group of us who are contract nerds and just love talking contracts. And, and it's not even just contract people. There are, are insurance nerds that love talking about insurance, and I learn a ton from them. So all I would say is, you know, that time on LinkedIn is not wasted time. It's uh, an investment, an investment in your knowledge, an investment in your network. You know, I hate the cocktail party networking events. I've never been able to do those, uh, and I still dread them. But I love talking to my friends on LinkedIn, and we talk in the comments, they talk in my posts, I comment on their posts. You know, we look for each other. I've had people when I was late posting one day, somebody messaged me to make sure I was okay. uh, Because it's such a regular, you know, I post every morning. So it's, I think it's to value that community and continue to focus on it.
0: Yes, truly. Anytime we at the ABA Journal run a story or set of tips for introverts, you know, it, it always gets so much traffic. And I think that A lot of people are intimidated by the idea of participating online, maybe because of the fear of, you know, some sort of backlash. I think a lot of people have concerns about, you know, the professional legal ethics in their area, you know, what counts as advice, legal advice. Did you go through that same sort of worry before you started your posting?
1: Definitely. And what I i was so scared that someone was going to stand up and say I was wrong or, you know, belittle me in front of everyone. And of course it happened. And I was, you know, mortified by it. But one of the beautiful things about LinkedIn is you can block people. And I felt terrible with the idea that I would block someone. But uh, somebody else mentioned that it was, you know, that's my space that I'm talking on. It's my post, and that people come to talk with me in my in the comments to my post and that I owe them an obligation not to let bullies and rude people kind of take over things. So so I dealt with it that way and then in terms of the legal ethics I spent a lot of time thinking about it but at the end of the day what I'm sharing are how experienced lawyers work on contracts. And I'm not giving advice for a particular situation. I'm talking about general techniques and approaches. And if it's not okay to share those, you know, our profession is in trouble because I think we've had that where many people didn't feel okay to share those kinds of things. They only shared case law, you know, rulings or things in law review articles and I think that is part of the reason we've gotten into this situation where we have a whole generation of lawyers who are out there working with contracts without having been mentored and or had this kind of practical training and way to find it. So I stepped in, in part, to fill that void and, and help share what I've learned over the years with people who are new to contracts.
0: And just as an aside, I think that Almost every jurisdiction has either an email address or a one eight hundred number you can reach out to if you do have a specific ethics concern uh, that you can run by a professional who knows what your jurisdiction's laws are. So that is that is a resource out there if you have those concerns. Well, I think that a lot of people are going to be intrigued by your story and may want to reach out to you or see some of the cartoons because those are not included in the book, maybe in part two, uh, if you end up collecting another book full of tips and information. So first of all, where can people find you? And second of all, do you have plans for a part two?
1: So first question, where can people find me? The, The place you'll find me every day is on LinkedIn. I'm at Laura Frederick. So you can find me there. And I still post every day. I've been doing it every day since August 3rd, 2020, and plan to continue to do it every day. In terms of the second book, yes, actually, I've got a targeted date for September of 2022 to come out with the next edition, and it will have all the cartoons for each post.
0: I love that. All right. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.